All right, well, we're in a series called ID, and we have a series theme song, so just jump right in with me. Okay, here we go. Who are you? Who, 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 who? Okay, now you're all warmed up. Every, how many people know that song? I fully expect you to sing it this time. Who are you? Who, 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 who? All right, good. Uh, just so you know, for the next four months, we will be singing that song. So just get used to it, okay? It just sort of introduces us into this. 336 years before Jesus was born, a guy named Alexander became the king of a northern province in Greece called Macedon. And two years after he became the king, he started one of the most famous, most powerful military conquest campaigns in the history of the world. Over the next 10 years, he did not lose one single battle, and he extended his empire to over a million square miles. It extended around the Mediterranean down through Egypt. It went through the whole Middle East all the way to India. And uh, it was almost, it's almost as fast as his armies could travel was how much territory they conquered. Amazing. Uh, he started when he was 20 years old, and he died when he was 33. Believe it or not, as a 33-year-old, he died. He had conquered almost the whole known world at that time. And uh, it's sort of an amazing story. But here's the thing that was really interesting, is Alexander the Great's, uh, his goal was not just to conquer, not just to be a conquering king, what he believed is that he lived in a culture, the Greek culture, that was the greatest culture that had ever been devised, the greatest culture in the world. And he truly believed that he was a steward of this culture, and the greatest favor that he could do for the world was to extend this culture into every corner of existence, into every place that every person would live in the Greek culture, and this was called Hellenization, actually, the Hellenization of the world. Uh, Hellenization comes from the Greek word hellas, which just simply means Greek. And so every place that he went, that was his goal. His goal was to transform society, to change society. And in fact, when he would go in and they would conquer a city, they would put up uh, various buildings with emphases to try and convert people. So they would go in and they would build gymnasiums. And in those gymnasiums, it would be a place for working out and for building bodies. Uh, it was an interesting thing. Uh, in that culture, when you went to work out, you did so uh, with no clothing on. So you were buff in more ways than one when you went to work out. And uh, one of the reasons they did that is because they believed that the human body was beautiful, that the most beautiful creation was the well-proportioned human body. Uh, they would also go in and they would set up theaters and they would do enactments of their Greek gods. And their Greek gods were interesting characters because they had incredible attributes. They were the biggest and the brightest and the fastest and the strongest. Uh, interestingly, though, many of them were not very moral, which made for great stories. And so they would have the stories of the Greek gods and people from all over the place would come in and learn sort of this foundation of the Greek culture of of how bigger and better and more beautiful was something to be celebrated. They would also put in institutes, sort of art institutes, 
where people would paint and people would sculpt, and all of this was to try and transmit this Greek, this Hellas culture into the places around the world. And finally, they'd put up temples where people could worship the pagan gods of their choice. There was, uh, there was many gods to choose from, and depending on the area of the world or, or uh, sort of the disposition of the person, different gods would be worshipped, and they wanted to set up worship centers where people could do that, really, in some ways, molding their gods into their own image. And so this was the great campaign that Alexander did. You know, he, he was only at it for a short time, but the ramifications, the consequences of this uh, effort rippled for centuries after he was dead. In fact, as the Roman society then became powerful and Rome conquered the world, Hellenization was still the primary uh, cultural push that was being done. And in Ephesus, uh, and we're looking at the book of Ephesians, in Ephesus, there was no place in the whole Roman Empire where Hellenization was more embraced and where people more and more thought that the ideals of the Greek culture were something not only to live for, but to die for. And it's in this city that Paul comes and establishes this church and then eventually writes a letter to the church. So it's hard to understand some of the things that Paul talks about without understanding this about the culture, is Hellenization was something, was a philosophy of life that the majority of people in that city embraced. And even people who were becoming Christ followers, people who were choosing to, to uh, put their faith in Jesus, they had this weird sort of philosophy that they had been raised in and that they understood that sort of had an impact uh, on their life. So that's a really important thing to understand. Now, we're only going to look in the book of Ephesians for a short time because I actually want to set up something a little bit different and then make a point out of chapter one, one phrase in chapter one. And this all has to do with our identity. The thing that you might think about and the thing that I think about, especially if you're a baby boomer, because this is one of the cries of our generation, is what's wrong with people trying to be the best that they can be, because that's really what Hellenization is about, people being the best that they can be. In fact, even better than that, really, people becoming perfect, becoming perfect in their bodies and having their bodies you know, just perfectly proportioned and in great shape and having their minds you know, spread and, and expanded and becoming wiser and, and more intelligent and understanding mysteries, you know, that that's a great thing. And then sort of the whole soul, the determination, the idea that human achievement, when it's done well, is the most inspiring thing in the world. Uh, that was all the Hellenization idea. And the question is, so why is, why is that bad? I mean, isn't that a good thing? Don't we want people that are striving to be their best and to be the brightest and to, to be the fastest and the biggest and the most beautiful? Isn't that really what we want? And it's so interesting because, believe it or not, God has an opinion about this. Okay? And I want you, in your Bibles, actually to turn to Genesis chapter 3, because right at the beginning, this notion uh, is introduced, and you're going to see the reaction from God 
when this notion is introduced, and I bet you it's going to surprise you. It sort of surprises me. Uh, so what we see, oh, you know what? I forgot one of my favorite illustrations. Is it too late to go back, do you think? Do you guys want me to go back, even if it pushes us a couple minutes later? All right, this is so fun. Because when I was growing up, uh, and this is my generation, okay, so this is like in the 70s, we had sort of this ideal of the perfect person. It was Lee Majors, <laughs> the $6 million man. How many of you ever saw the $6 million man? Okay, and those of you not raising your hand, you're too young, and you're like, what? Well, and I'm just telling you, this was back when like $6 million was a lot of money. I mean, right now, it's like $6 million man. What could you do with that? But anyway, Lee Majors, it was an interesting story, and so he's an astronaut or a pilot or something that got in an accident, and they replaced his legs uh, with bionic legs and replaced one of his arms with bionic arm and replaced one of his eyes with bionic eye. And it was interesting. His legs could make him run 60 miles an hour. Back in that day, that was fast. And, uh, and his arm, like he could beat Superman in arm wrestling. I mean, that's how powerful his arm was. And his eye had this ability to, like, infrared kind of, you know, these lenses that would make everything big. I mean, it was an amazing thing. And every time that he... He sort of moved into the bionic kind of action, the, the, the sound. It would go, and he'd actually go into slow motion, which was always a little ironic because he's running 60 miles an hour, but he'd be and so, and I, as a kid, I just loved the $6 million man because it was like the perfect man. And in fact, women sort of said, why does it only have to be a man? So they created another series called the bionic woman with Lindsay Wagner and she was a babe and she was strong and she was fast and she had ears that could hear everything and so it was kind of a cool thing and in, in my day that was the perfect picture and again you sort of get this question so why is that bad why is it bad to be perfect okay now just pretend I gave that illustration about five minutes ago and let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to see kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and maybe you never noticed this, but this is the story about how human beings originally fell out of God's favor, originally rebelled. That's what this story is. And it says in verse 5 uh, that when Satan was tempting Eve, the line that he gives her is he says, if you eat of this fruit that God has prohibited, here's the reason God doesn't want you to do it. It's not because he loves you. It's because he wants to block you from something, and here's what it is. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Now listen to this next line. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is a statement of perfection. It is the thought that if uh, you take this step, you can actually move in a direction where you become, uh, in this case, as knowledgeable as God, which would mean, of course, that you don't really need God anymore because you've got it without him. You've got kind of this perfect mind, this perfect discernment, without God being any kind of part of that. And so that's the temptation, and we know the story that Eve ate the fruit and gave it to her husband, and he ate the fruit. And then... Uh, God moves into action, and if you read the rest of chapter 3, you'll see that he pushes very hard against that, basically says you've made a huge, huge, huge mistake that has just 
incredibly terrible consequences. But he does a really interesting thing. At the end of chapter 3, it says in verse 22, And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, speaking about uh, the Trinity, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so really what's happening here is that God says, okay, so now they have this idea that they can strive toward perfection and that they can reach it. This is now a new thought that human beings have. Uh, They have this ability. They think that they're on a par now with God to be able to do this. And so God says there's one thing we cannot allow them to do as long as they think this way and as long as this is their ambition, which is to eat from the tree of life and to become eternal with this problem. For them to become eternal and to think that perfection is within their grasp, to think that they don't need God anymore, that they can become everything that they want to be, that would be the worst possible thing that could happen. And in fact, we're going to see how true that is in a second. That's the worst possible thing. So God actually sets up uh, two angels at the sort of the doorway to the Garden of Eden He boots Adam and Eve out, and he says, you can't get back in, or they'll slice you in two with their swords. Do not take and become eternal with this mindset. So God has a huge push against human beings who think we can become perfect. We can do this on our own. Flip forward to Genesis chapter 11, if you've got that. The story is the Tower of Babel. Most of you know that story. The Tower of Babel is also an interesting story. What happens is that human beings now, have their, they've multiplied, and there's a lot of them on the earth, and now they are coming together in community, which I think we'd all agree is a good thing. They're getting along well. They're trying to do things in concert with each other. They're trying to accomplish things together, and they decide during this time that they're going to build a tower that reaches up into the heavens. And uh, you need to understand a little bit of that culture, and I don't want to go into a ton of detail about it, but this was basically a statement of, we're going to reach up to the heavens because if we can get up to the heavens, guess who we're like? God. We're like God. And so as you look in chapter 11, in verse 4, it says, uh, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And then look at God's reaction to this. He doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so proud of my children. They're all working together. Look at this great accomplishment that they're doing. Instead, here's what he says. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, uh, If, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so instead of God celebrating, sort of like a parent would, wouldn't you as a parent, if your kids are getting along well and they're building stuff and doing things, you'd be so proud. It's so interesting because God looks at it and goes, this is not a good thing. And in fact, uh, then basically he curses them by giving them different languages so they can't understand each other and can't work together. So what is it? God doesn't like people getting along. God doesn't like achievement. That was not the issue. The issue was he knew that if they ever got into the mindset where they believed that they could become like God, that they could become perfect, that they got to the place where God was not needed anymore, 
that that would be the worst curse that could possibly happen. And so he comes in and he goes, I can't allow it. I can't allow that to happen. All right, now fast forward hundreds, hundreds, thousands, thousands of years. Now we get to the, the prophets of the Old Testament. A lot of time has passed, and you've had Abraham, and you've had Moses, and you've had David, and you've had the kingdom divided, and you have prophets speaking, and there's a prophet named Ezekiel, and he is giving prophecies against various towns and cities around Israel, okay? So this is, this is a long time afterwards. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 27, and you're going to see another really interesting thing. There was a city called Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and it was on the coast, and it was a very, very industrious and prosperous city. And uh, there was a king there, and it's interesting because, the, the, again, the kingdom was prosperous. Uh, there was a lot of good things coming out of Tyre at that time. And so we read in verse, um, well, it's in various verses. I'm just going to bring up a couple from verses, uh, chapters 27 and 28. It says, uh, you say, Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. And so in Tyre, they believed that their city was beautiful, that the people in the city were beautiful. The king personally thought he was beautiful. Uh, also, by your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourselves and amassed gold and silver. And so they were very industrious, and they were good salesmen and tradesmen. And, and their, their, their uh, city was known for sort of its extravagance and the luxury that was provided because they were so good as businessmen and as uh, you know, entrepreneur kinds of people. And so that was happening. And then finally it says, And by your great skill uh, in trading, you have increased your wealth. And so again, you see these really kind of marvelous characteristics. Things that we would say, well, why is that bad? That's a good thing. They're good at trading. Uh, you know, they take their physical appearance uh, as important. And they treat their bodies well. And so that's all a good thing. And they, they expand their knowledge and their wisdom. And yet again, look at this really interesting response that God gives to Tyre. He says, therefore, uh, this is verse 6 in chapter 28. It says, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a, as wise as a God, I'm going to bring in foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. So a very strong statement of God saying, no, no, this is not good. This is not the way you should behave. This is not the way it goes. And in fact, the most interesting thing of things happens uh, a little later in Ezekiel 28. He continues, Ezekiel continues to talk about the king of uh, Tyre, but almost all scholars believe that now this is just a code name for Lucifer or Satan. In other words, he starts by talking about a real human king, the king of Tyre, and then he has sort of this pride thing going about his beauty and his splendor and his wisdom and his power. And then it's almost, it's almost sort of in this thing that the prophets do at times, he just moves right over and he says, in fact, this was the exact same problem that there was this angel that was created a long, 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 long time ago. And this angel kind of believed that he was the most beautiful, that he was the most powerful, that he was, uh, you know, sort of the biggest and the brightest and the best. And we read these words. You don't have this. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. But uh, just listen to this description. Starting in verse 12, Ezekiel 28, 12. You can just listen along. It says, You were the seal of perfection, 
speaking about Lucifer, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, okay? So you are in paradise. In this case, heaven. Uh, the garden of God. You are anointed as a guardian cherub. Cherub is another word for angel. He was a guardian angel, basically. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. What was this wickedness? Uh, Basically, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. And God makes this very strong statement, because here's the point, okay? So here's the point. The point is not that God is against self-improvement. That's not the point. We'll see that in just a second. The point is that the pride that comes from seeing your identity as someone who can become perfect, as someone who is better than everyone else, as someone who becomes the best, that pride is so crippling and does so much damage that any benefit that you get from becoming faster and stronger and more beautiful, any of the benefits that come from that, and there are some benefits, are far, far outweighed by the fact that don't you understand that you are becoming corrupt from the inside out? The ugliest trait of the human character is this pride, is this uh, independence, is this thought that I am better than all, that I am entitled, that others should serve me because look at me. And God recognizes that right from the beginning of the whole story. And he says, anytime I see the pride, you've got to know that I'm going to push against that as hard as I possibly can. Because the problem isn't only that you become, you start to emulate somebody like Lucifer, who then becomes completely wicked. The problem is you start to see your identity in that way. And that, that is a huge problem. That is a huge problem when we see our identity as either someone who has become perfected or that we're really on top of it. I'm better than most. Or we think that that's where our value is found, that that's what we need to chase. That's the direction that we need to go and that our identity actually is based on how well that is done. Now, it's important to note, again, that God is not against self-improvement. If you're sitting here and thinking, well, this is good news for me because I just started on a diet. I hate diets. And now we're basically being told I shouldn't worry about how I look or I shouldn't worry about exercise or I shouldn't worry about going to college. I didn't want to go to college anyway. Don't worry about expanding my mind. Don't worry about being successful. I'm going to just live with mom and dad for the rest of my life. I'm 53 years old, but hey, what the heck? You know, whatever, that is not what's being said here. In fact, it's true that Paul talks about the importance of expanding our knowledge and our wisdom and our understanding. The Bible talks often about self-discipline and and moving in various fields and becoming better. Uh, Paul at one point talks about he's like a boxer that buffets his body to, you know, sort of trains his body so that it can really uh, fully, fully uh, accomplish the things that he wants his body to accomplish. We even read about Jesus at the beginning of his life, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with men and favor with God. In other words, this idea of becoming better, 
uh, is not something God's antagonistic to. Rather, a good way to look at it is when you start saying, not that I'm going to be better, and not that I'm going to develop myself, but I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the smartest. I'm going to be the most beautiful. Uh, Then, the Bible would say, we're starting to cross a line believing that perfection is something within our grasp. That somehow we can manage or manipulate or strive in our life to become something that that really is almost on par with the grandeur and the splendor of God. And God looks at that and says, don't cross that line. Don't cross that line. And really, the reason for it, again, as we sort of peel back, is because the great commandment in the New Testament, Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And the first of the great commands is to love God. And the second command is like it, to love others as yourself. And one of the things you realize is if you're on a mission to become the best you can be, to become the biggest and the best and the brightest, you can see that that pushes God away. You can see how that pushes other people away. And God says, see, you're working right. Now now you're in direct conflict with the call that I've given you to be the greatest lover, to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as yourself. That's my call to you. My call is not, first and foremost, to be the biggest and the best and the brightest. It's to love the most. That's really the call. The call is to love the most. Uh, any culture then, any culture that says that value is based on how smart you are, how beautiful you are, how, uh, how bright, how fast, how strong, how successful, any culture that says that that's how we will attribute worth to individuals, Paul is going to say, absolutely not. And in Ephesus, in a Hellenization kind of mindset. That was exactly how people thought. They thought this was the way that it worked. And Paul stands in and says, well, you're not going to love God the way you need to love God if you think this. But then there's even another thing that happens that's even even worse. And they saw it in Ephesus in how they treated children. Let me tell you this. This is unbelievable. You're not going to believe this. Check it out. Make sure that I'm not a crackpot, Okay. But they practiced something in the ancient world called infant exposure. What infant exposure was, when a child was born, if that child was born with any kind of deformity, if they looked at it and they said, you know, his face doesn't look right, or she, she, you know, she, there's something wrong with her leg, or, or anything, if there was any kind of deformity, uh, the child would be brought to the father. And if the father looked down and picked up the child, That was good news that day for that baby. That meant the baby was accepted into the family. But if the father looked down and saw this child, 
and decided that this child would not measure up, not in a culture that is based on the biggest and the best and the brightest. And if the father turned and walked away, that baby would be picked up, would be taken outside of the city gates in Ephesus, and would be left up on a mountain road that was infamous for leaving babies. And the baby would be left there to die. Infant exposure. It was generated from an attitude that if you can't be the biggest, the best, and the brightest in our culture, you have no value. Even to parents, you have no value. Now, there would be people that would go up, and they would look through these babies that were being left up on this mountain, and if they deemed that that baby in some way would have some value in the future as a slave, they would adopt the baby and bring it home long enough to raise it and either use it as a slave for their own household or sell it into slavery. And Ephesus, at this time, had the biggest slave trade in the ancient world. And this came out of an attitude of value is based on how big, how bright, how beautiful. Your value, your identity is totally formed on that. Now, you're all thinking, well, that's really interesting history. What could that possibly have to do with us here in Orange County? And I'm glad you asked. So how do we in Orange County evaluate people? What is the standard that we use in our country, and maybe more particularly in Orange County, where I think that it's even more prominent? How do we value people? How do we evaluate the worth that someone has? Let's take your body. How do we evaluate you when we look at you? What's the first thing that we notice? What do we care about? What makes us turn away? And what makes us turn and look a second time in our culture? What do we value? It's interesting. There's sort of this scandalous story that's circulating right now. A woman who was giving her uh, girl, her eight-year-old girl, who is in beauty pageants, Botox injections. Eight years old. Get rid of those terrible eight-year-old wrinkles that you know all eight-year-olds have. I saw her interviewed. And she actually, with a total straight face and without any sense of shame, said, oh, absolutely. In our industry, lots of parents do this. It is the way for my daughter to really become the most beautiful little girl that she can be, and we know how important that is. Uh, people were so outraged. She actually did a news interview on this. People were so outraged that they called Human Services. Human Services came to check her out for uh, parental abuse, and she said, oh, I was just kidding. I don't give my child Botox injections, even though her daughter is saying they really hurt. They really hurt when they happen. Tell me that's not crazy. But before you point a finger too much, do you know how much our country spends every year on cosmetic surgery? $10 billion. The recent recession, almost every industry lost money. Do you know what? is now considered recession-proof, a recession-proof industry, cosmetic surgery. We value the way we look. Kelly Clarkson, you guys all know her, American Idol fame, now is a great singer, uh, really a neat, neat woman. And one of the things that she tries to do is promote uh, teenage girls having healthy images of themselves. 
And so she was asked to do an interview with Self Magazine. Self Magazine took a picture of Kelly Clarkson. Then they looked at it and they said, you know, Kelly Clarkson's fine looking. She's fine looking. Uh, but they said, you know, she's a little larger than we'd like. And they actually, if you look at the picture on the right, which is her real body, and you look at her on the left, does that look a little different? Amazing what they can do. You know, the, the power of image. And so they actually they slimmed her down. She was so outraged that she outed them and said, don't do that. Don't make me look like somebody that I'm not. But all this is is a magazine saying, we know what sells. And we will promote images to our young girls and to our young men that are impossible to become because it sells our magazine. Do you think we live in a culture that worships the human body, the idea of perfection? What does that do for all of us that could never reach that? How do you, let me just ask, how do you feel about your body? You know, when you look at things like this, you can't feel too good about it. You can't feel too good about it. And God looks at that and says, man, and I created you. And now this society says your body doesn't look right. Well, how about athleticism in our culture? Do you think that we value athletes? Do you think we value those who are great at sports, who are the fastest and the biggest? Uh, you know, the people that get paid the most amount of money in our society, outside of entrepreneurs that can, the sky's the limit, are our athletes. Uh, we have athletes that make $25, $30 million a year for playing a game. We love our athletes because they're the biggest and the brightest and the best. And so we worship these athletes. There was a guy years ago, Todd Marinovich, he's actually from Orange County, and his father was a football coach, and his dream for his son was that he become a NFL football quarterback. And so from a young age, he started grooming his son Todd to become an NFL quarterback. Uh, so much grooming him that he would train him. He would have him run. They'd be, like, they'd be someplace, and he'd say, son, today you're going to run home. It was like 10 miles, and he was like 8 years old. Today you're going to run home. Uh, he would go to birthday parties, and his dad wouldn't let him have birthday cake. He'd pack him carrots. Ah, you love your dad for that, don't you? Carrots instead of birthday cake. Anyway, from a young age, he was groomed. Everything had to do with this goal of making him an NFL quarterback. He went to USC. Uh, had a great career at USC. Some of you will remember as a quarterback, he was drafted, eventually played for the Raiders, and was a total washout. He just could not handle the pressure. Totally washed out. And people looked at it and said that was so unfair to put that kind of pressure on that kid, all growing up, telling him that his self-worth was tied to being an NFL quarterback. Do you know who is one of the most prominent, uh, uh, prosperous, Athletic trainers for youth in our, uh, in our country today, Marv Marinovich, the man that did this to his son. Parents still look at it and say, we want you to do this for our boy. We want you to do this for our child. Make our child a great athlete. And you just start to realize the kind of damage that does. Intellectually, what kind of pressure do we put on our kids? Now, you know, it's always good to stimulate your kids and help them to be as smart as they can be and so forth. But when does that cross the line? When do we start crossing the line? Is it when a kid's in elementary school and we start tutoring them so that they can get into the college that we want them to go to? Is it when we have kids in spelling bees up in front of a national audience, kids that are like 
eight, nine, ten years old with this pressure of cameras on them, and they're spelling words that have, you know, 30 letters in them. Uh, we were, I was watching it one time, and a kid who was, like, close to the finals, he stands up, he just passes out, just faints right onto the stage. You guys, any of you see that? The spelling bee kid that just, the pressure was incredible. Are we crossing lines when we say intellect is so important that you've got to push yourself, and if you're not smart enough, you're not worth anything to us? You see, that's what is the danger of our culture. And it was really poignantly shown uh, to me when I saw a video from Mike Erie, who's one of the pastors in our church. And uh, he showed this video right before he spoke on this issue in front of a crowd. And uh, he introduces us to his son named Seth. Watch this video. There is another way. There's the way that God chooses to have us identify ourselves. And I'm going to do this. Um, Band, you can come on up and get ready. And if you're ushers, you can go ahead and pass. We're going to take communion. But I need you to concentrate because uh, the most important part of the teaching is coming right now. As Paul talks to the people at Ephesus, the people that have understood, as long as they've been raised, that their identity is based on how perfect they can be. Uh, he writes these words. Verse 4, chapter 1. says, In love, he, God, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And I want to point out just a couple of things about uh, this verse these verses that you're looking at. It says right before this that this selection, this, this choosing of you, was made before the foundation of the earth was established. In other words, and, and actually it's not even the earth, it's the cosmos, it's the universe. In other words, before the creation, God had already made a choice for you. He had already adopted you. It wasn't based on anything you'd done it wasn't based on how perfect or imperfect you would be. It had none of those characteristics. That's the point. The point of the emphasis of God's choice is that it wasn't conditioned on us. It wasn't conditioned with the way that we are or, or how well we accomplish things or how beautiful we are. It, that's the point of it. It's not based on that at all. And so you have this amazing, amazing statement that says you need to identify yourself in a totally different way than you have identified yourself. And you guys, if you want to pass that, you can just take the elements and hold them. We'll take them together in a minute. But if you want to pass those, you're going to get bread and a little bit of juice as well. Just take that and hold it. Uh, this was so intriguing. Listen, this is so cool. This was so intriguing to the early church that people who became Christians, Christ followers, would actually go up on that mountain and they would pick up the children who had been discarded and they would adopt them. Not for slavery. They would adopt them so they could learn that there was a heavenly father that loved them. That was how the, the early church was known for that. In a culture where, where deformity was shunned, the early church said, we will embrace 
because it is an extension of what God the Father does. This is what God does for us. I had friends uh, years ago that decided they were going to adopt a child from China. And so if you've ever gone through an adoption process, it's extremely expensive, and it's very complicated and often very frustrating. And so after months and months and months of saving the money and getting things straight and figuring out things with the adoption agency and making travel plans to go to China, uh, this man and his wife traveled to China. Uh, they had to, from a major city, they had to travel hours and hours outside of the city to this little village eventually. They were told that when they got there, they would have to live in the village for a week so that the child, the little girl they were adopting, would feel comfortable and be ready to go. And so they did this. They went into a culture that was totally foreign to them. They had huge expenses, all of these kinds of things. And they lived there for a week. And at the end of the week, they were allowed to take the little girl. And they brought the little girl home. And it was when they were coming back on the plane uh, that the mother broke down and started crying. And she said, do you realize, she was talking to her husband, do you realize what we've done? Do you realize what we have saved this little girl, this little uh, orphaned girl from? Because they had lived there for a week. And they knew how that girl would have been treated in that culture. They knew what that future was. And they also knew that the moment they signed the papers to adopt that little girl, that that little girl immediately had all the rights that their other children had. That little girl became, just by that signature, co-heirs with their real children, with their natural children. Her whole destiny was changed. Listen to this when you were adopted. And by him, this is Jesus, by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father just means Daddy. It's the most intimate phrase you can call a, a father in that culture. Abba, it's like Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, okay? So all of a sudden we become heirs. We start to, we get these things just by virtue of being a child. Listen, listen what we inherit Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, with Jesus, with God's only begotten. When we're adopted, we immediately are given the blessings and the rights, all the benefits that Jesus has because he's the Father's son. That's you. That's you if you've accepted Jesus. You are a co-heir with Jesus. It is one of the most, it may be the most amazing promise. It is a great thing that God saves us from an eternity separated from him. It is a great thing that he gives us abundant life on this earth. But can you think of anything greater than the heavenly father saying, I am adopting you and you have all the rights and privileges of my son Jesus now. That's what you get. And that's who you are. That is your identity. 
We live in a culture that says our identity is how big, how bright, how beautiful. When we become a Christian, our identity is changed to a child of the Father that is now an heir to all the rights and the benefits that Jesus is entitled to. That is who you are. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. Likewise, he took the cup, and after dinner he said, this cup is the new covenant, is the new arrangement. Part of that arrangement involves a new identity. You will not be judged on what you accomplish. You will be accepted as a child. This is the new arrangement. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the cup. Jesus, we are so grateful for the truth that our identity is not based on how we compare to others that we live around. It is not based on what we see on TV, what we're told to emulate. It is not based on a society that rewards the biggest and the best and the brightest. Jesus, as we take this communion, as we still feel that bread and that juice going down our throat, we're reminded of the fact that we have identity because we are your sons and daughters. We are loved as a parent loves a child and accepts a child. And that identity is never taken from us because of what we do or don't do or how we measure up or what other people think or even what we think about ourselves. It is locked in stone because it is what you have deemed us to be, a son or a daughter of God. So we are grateful. And today we celebrate that. And this week, remind us of it because there will be a million messages that come our way that say, uh, we don't measure up. We aren't good enough. We will not be accepted. We cannot be successful. Those messages come wave after wave after wave, and we need to be reminded that that's not the way you see it. That is not reality. That is not the truth of the matter. The truth is we are your child, and nothing can change that, and we have been adopted. So we are grateful for that. We truly are those that call Abba Father, Daddy, Jesus, thank you that you have made this possible. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.